All right, well, today we conclude our short sermon series on the servant songs in Isaiah. There's four of them, and today we look at the fourth servant song. And all the servant songs were written at least 700 years before Jesus' birth. But the amazing thing, though, is they all point to him. We see these servant songs fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Long before the birth of Christ, God promised to send a servant, a Messiah, a Savior. And today we we study one of those servant songs. And this is actually the most profound of all the servant songs. There's a couple of bulletin inserts for you. One of them is a listing of like 42 different prophecies in this song we're about to read and how they are fulfilled and have been fulfilled in the New Testament, in the person, in the life of Jesus Christ. We're not going to look at that right now. That's for you to study later. The other insert is the actual servant song. It's a little too big to fit in the bulletin, uh, but it's also nice to have it so that throughout the week you can pray it through and read it through and perhaps even share it with a friend or two. I've decided not to read through the entire servant song at the beginning. I'm going to do that at the end of our time together. I think after we've studied it, it'll, it'll perhaps have a little more weight and force in our lives. So uh, we're going to study the servant song. Before we do, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we are amazed at how we can look back at texts that have been written hundreds of years before Christ, and we see in them the beauty of Christ, uh, who he was to be and who he has become. I know for some this is hard to fathom, it's hard to comprehend. Uh, I pray that your spirit would be with us as we study and seek to understand, and more so than that, that we would respond appropriately, that we would respond with great joy and delight in salvation as he has promised to us here in this passage. Amen. You know, growing up in Missouri had a lot of advantages. I know some of you here on the East Coast have never been to Missouri. You're probably like, what is Missouri? What's so nice about it, right? But uh, it's actually a very, very beautiful state. And one of the things I really enjoyed as a child growing up was we would go on float trips. That's where you get in a canoe uh, or on, um, if you're really lazy, you just get in a really giant inner tube and you just float down the river. There's really a lot of beautiful rivers and streams in Missouri. One of them is called the Current River. And yes, it's got a really fast current. It's a beautiful river. It's mostly fed by giant uh, freshwater springs. So the water that comes out comes rushing out, huge volumes of it, crystal clear, and it cuts through the through the, the wooded countryside and it carves out these beautiful canyons and bluffs. It's just a, a sight to behold. One of the things you can do if there's not a bunch of hillbillies out in the water drinking beer and making a lot of noise, one of the things you can do if just you time it just right is um, you feel all alone there. And your mind can drift to, like, what was it like when just the Indians uh, canoed these rivers? One such day I had living proof that Indians actually did uh, walk around that very same river. I looked down at the ground. It was just all these uh, just beautiful, like, rocks that you would see along a river. But one of the rocks jumped out at me. It was different. I reached down, I picked it up, and I looked at it. And it was perfectly chiseled on all sides. And what I held in my hand was no ordinary rock. It was a a beautiful craftsmanship of an Indian arrowhead. One of the things that it caused me to do is I just tried to imagine, I wonder who 
carved this. I wonder who spent the time doing it. It looked like an expert Indian. It wasn't some young brave. It was probably someone who's made hundreds of these arrowheads before. And this one got lost in time. I held it in my hands. I marveled at it. Our passage today is like an arrowhead on the pages of Scripture. It's no ordinary rock. In it, what we see is five stanzas, each with three verses, all of them like a chiseling on, the, on, the, on, a, on an arrowhead, all of them shaping and forming this image that God wants us to see. And the image is what? It's his beautiful son, the Messiah, the suffering servant, our substitute savior. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. First, let's, um, so let's look at each stanza. The first stanza, if you would look on your page there, it's Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. The first stanza gives us kind of an overview, so to speak, but it doesn't follow the the order necessarily of the poem. In the first stanza, there's a voice, and the voice we actually hear is God himself. And it begins with the word, Behold. Special attention is being called for on our behalf as we read it. God will restore Israel through this servant, and light will come to all the nations. So behold... Let's read that first verse. Behold, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. First, let me establish that this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's who it is being spoken of. In John chapter 12, John quotes this actual servant song. And then he goes on to say these words. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He's talking about Jesus. The glory of Christ, Isaiah saw. 700 years before Christ walked the earth, Isaiah saw him with eyes of faith. And he heralded him. And so what this first verse does is is it tells us something. It, 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 It tells us of his crowning success of this servant. He's going to do all that was needed of him. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. He will be someone who is worthy of our worship. Now, whereas this first verse 13 speaks of the overwhelming success of the servant, verses 14 and 15 speak of the shock and disbelief that his shame and humiliation would produce on a worldwide scale. Let's read them. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Verse 14 says that many will be astonished by this servant. Why? Why were they astonished? Well, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human resemblance. And, and we know from the gospel accounts about Jesus' arrest and his torture and crucifixion that, that Jesus' body was essentially put through a meat grinder. 
We know that he was scourged with the whip. And a Roman whip uh, it had multiple leather lashes on it. And some of them had steel balls at the tip of them. And others had sharpened bits of bone. Some had both. And what would happen was not only was the body just severely bruised, but those bone pieces, the sharp ones, would dig into the skin. And as, as the torturer pulled back on it, it would rip the flesh open all the way down to the subcutaneous layers. And blood would pour out. Jesus was so abused leading up to his crucifixion that we know that he died quicker than most people who were crucified. So marred beyond human resemblance was Christ's body that the Roman soldiers and all who were looking on were not saying, is this the servant of the Lord? But rather they were questioning, is this really human? But... Only God in his great paradoxical wisdom can take the extreme suffering of Christ and and bring about his plan of redemption. Uh, Isaiah writes that as many were astonished, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And he says kings will shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told. They now see they now understand. Isaiah was connecting the as statement with the so statement as repulsive as Jesus became. So much more so, he shall be effective in his mission that God has given him to cleanse. And that's what this sprinkling means. Isaiah is thinking about what the priest used to do in the Old Testament times. Ray Ortland Jr. writes this. For example, when a leopard was cleansed, a priest sprinkled blood on him to show that his disease was washed away and he was healthy now, ready to be accepted back into the community That's what Jesus does with moral lepers. And on the Day of Atonement, a priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, making Israel fit for the presence of God. Even the priests themselves had to be sprinkled with the water purification. But Christ is both our priest and our sacrifice, and he doesn't need to be cleansed. In fact, the sprinkling of his blood is pure enough and lavish enough to cleanse many nations. He touches the unwashed, the unclean, the outsiders, making them fit for God. Isaiah tells us that nothing like this was ever expected by humanity. It's as if our human minds all of, of all of humanity captured together, brainstorming. We never even would have thought of such a thing. God becoming flesh, taking on the sins of humanity and dying in humanity's place. It doesn't even enter into the thoughts of human beings. That's why the prophet, it's what he's getting at when he says kings will shut their mouth. Kings who have power and glory and authority. Kings who represent all of the nations. Even they will shut their mouths in amazement at the gospel. Nations will hear what they have not heard before. This message goes out to the world. They hear of this servant who suffers for mankind. So when we behold this servant, the proper response for us is what? It's it's speechless wonder. The second stanza is the first three verses of chapter 53. The voice we hear is no longer the Lord's. Instead, we hear human witnesses, human people, human witnesses who almost missed out, who almost overlooked the arrowhead. All right. Human witnesses who who um, at first didn't properly see the work of the servant. At first, they misjudged the servant. But now they do understand. And they don't want us to miss out either. 
we read, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This first verse here is quoted twice in the New Testament and both times it's used to try to help to explain why people who stood physically in front of Jesus and heard all he did and and saw all the things he did, did not believe in him. Why would people reject Jesus? Well, because he's not the kind of savior people want. Verses 2 and 3 show us that. The nation of Israel and us, we look for powerful and attractive people to lead us. But that's not how the servant of the Lord appears. He is likened to a, a young plant, a young plant sticking out of inhospitable soil, a young plant grasping for life, one dry spell and it's withered. Or he's likened to a, a stray root that just somehow pops up out of the soil and, and, and uh, certainly... Certainly, this is not an image befitting of a, of a Messiah. The witnesses move from plant analogies to the actual appearance of the servant. We read that there is nothing about this servant, the appearance of him, that would cause people to say, there he is. There's the one that God has sent to us. That's him right there. The appearance of this servant is so off-putting that people wouldn't even notice him. It would be like just another rock in the stream, so to speak. And if someone were to point to him and say to you, look right over there, there's God's deliverer, you would laugh out loud. That's the picture that Isaiah is portraying here. The deliverers that we want are attractive and powerful. We look for big, bold, powerful people to lead us. We look for, we look for oak trees, not young plants. Isaiah says that not only does he not look the part of one we would desire. In verse 3, we read that instead of desiring him, he is despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's one that people hide their faces from. You know, we, we don't like to be around people who are sickly and ill and who are very needy and sorrowful. We, we tend to avoid them rather than draw near them. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah points, points out that, that there's nothing, not only is nothing about his appearance that, that is attractive, but he's also, he's just full of his own problems, right? John Oswald writes, He's not one of the winners. He's one of the losers. And it's axiomatic that losers cannot deliver other losers. He is a man of pain and sickness. What can he do for the rest of us? Jesus was a man of sorrows. Our sorrows he carried. God took on flesh, and the flesh he took upon himself wasn't one of an attractive prince. He took on the sorrow and the grief of the most despised among us, the type people hide their faces from, he was despised and rejected. You remember, remember Pontius Pilate. He's the one in whose, in whose hand uh, Jesus' very life, his fate was held. Pontius Pilate was there to rule over whether he should be crucified or not. He found no guilt in Jesus. He was innocent. But local custom allowed for one person to be let free from prison. In jail was a notorious criminal, Barabbas, a real oak tree of a man. 
a, a zealot who was led a rebel, a rebellious cause, and there was blood on his hands. Pilate asked, who should I give you, Barabbas or Jesus? Thinking that, of course, they will take Jesus. He's the innocent one. You know how the story ended. They welcomed Barabbas. They rejected Jesus. And within a few moments, they were shouting, crucify him. Let me share Ray Orland's comments on this stanza before moving on. Don't think that if you had been an eyewitness of Jesus, you would have admired him. Not even his miracles made the impact they should have. His own family misjudged him. When he traveled with his disciples, it wasn't like the movies. Jesus didn't have a holy glow about him. The woman at the well had no idea whom she was talking to. Even John the Baptist became uncertain about him. Our Lord wasn't special in ways that we count special. In fact, he became hideous in his suffering so that people shunned him as one from whom men hide their faces. He goes on to ask, what did the servant of the Lord, why did the servant of the Lord sink so low? He had to become like us for us to become like him. But if we'd been there, every one of us wouldn't have despised, every one of us would have despised and rejected him and turned away to follow after really cool people like Barabbas or Caiaphas or Pilate, depending upon our politics or maybe even just our mood at the moment. That's who we are. When the only true remedy for the guilt that tortures us and threatens us with eternal destruction appeared right in front of us, our emotions were dead, our decisions misguided, our minds corrupted, and he accepted it as the price love had to pay to give us our lives back. In the third stanza, we see with great clarity the price that the servant paid to win us back. In this third stanza, we see Isaiah take such a striking blow on on the rock of this passage that now we really truly see it's becoming an arrowhead. This is the pivotal passage of the whole poem. It summarizes all of what the servant has done, and so it's very important we get it right. And what Isaiah says, he's saying, that man, that disfigured, that, that dry root looking man of sorrows, that man, he's actually God's deliverer. Verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The, servant, the, the witnesses are saying, oh, how we had him wrong. We thought at best to pity this man of sorrows, but how foolish we were. Those, those griefs and sorrows that caused us to despise him, those were ours. And he carried them upon himself. As Christ hung on the cross, no one was looking at him going, there's my substitute, there's my man of sorrows, there's the one who carries my guilt and shame and sorrow. No, people shouted, You saved others, save yourself. Or they shouted, where is your God? 
And on that, they, they said, you know, they, they looked at Jesus like he was cursed. And in a sense, he, he was cursed. And what we see in these three verses is what God has done for us through his son. It's where we get our sermon title, which is Substitute Savior. Now, the big $10 theological term for this is substitutionary penal atonement. If you're taking notes, feel free. Substitutionary penal atonement. Substitutionary. Jesus substituted himself for us. Penal. Jesus took upon him the penalty of our sin. Atonement. Jesus has worked us away back to our Heavenly Father. He has made it so that we are at one with Him. Did you notice how many times the word He and us are used? It shows that He's been substituted for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, that's the lashes, the wounds, we are healed. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, there's these stones in the riverbed of substitutionary penal atonement. They're all over the place, especially in the book of Leviticus, right? (laughs) Some of those who know your Bible, they're all over the place. But nowhere um, in the Old Testament is there the, the substitutionary person is not an animal, but in fact a human being. That's what makes this such an arrowhead in our hands here this morning. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would first offer up a sacrifice for his own sins. And then, if you, if you know what happens, they, they would take two goats, uh, unblemished, perfect goats, and they would cast lots. And the, the, lot that the, that fell, the goat that the lot fell on, that goat would be offered up as a sacrifice. And you know what they did with the other goat? The high priest, on that one day, would take his hands and lay it upon that goat signifying that all of the sins of all the people of Israel were being placed on this animal. You know what they did with it? They took it out in the wilderness and they let it loose, signifying that so has your sins been taken away from the people of God. You know what they call that? The scapegoat. This is what we've seen taking place here. In the New Testament, it makes it clear that this is who the servant Christ is. He's both goats. He's the one who died for the sins to cleanse, And he's also the one upon whom our sins are placed and sent out into the wilderness. Peter writes about this. Peter, who walked with Jesus, who saw him on the cross, who on the way to the cross didn't want Jesus to go there. But now after the cross, after he's seen uh, what Jesus has done, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then check it out. By his wounds, his stripes, You have been healed. Peter quotes this passage from Isaiah that we're studying, and he points us to the cross. The last line of this stanza emphasizes that all, all of us need this substitute Savior. The last line reads, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one, in case you didn't get the all, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Once again, Ray Ortland. Isaiah writes as if we were there at the cross because we were. If it wasn't our guilt that required the death of Jesus, what did? Remember Rembrandt's painting, The Raising of the Cross? 
how he paints himself into the picture as one of the men crucifying the Lord. He not only portrays Jesus, he includes himself in the scene. Isaiah is doing that here, not with a brush on canvas, but with pen on paper. He's not only describing Jesus, he's telling our story too. We cannot say, if I had been there, I wouldn't have shouted crucify him. Isaiah brings us to the heart of the message. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus really was a man of sorrows. But they weren't his own. He didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. In a way we do not understand, God substituted, or Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. God has done what we'd have no right to do. God has shifted the blame to Jesus as he died for guilty people. God has pointed his finger. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The fourth stanza continues with this metaphor of sheep. If we've all like sheep gone astray, God has used Jesus as a sheep to bring us back. Verses 7, 8, and 9. He was oppressed and, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generations, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. A couple quick points. Last week we pointed out how Jesus willingly went to the cross, right? He knew it was coming. He went there knowingly. Here we see that he didn't fight the injustice when it came upon him. But this isn't how you and I respond when injustice comes upon us, is it? We shout out, we say, how dare you, you know, my own kids. I don't know how many times they say, that's not fair, you know. When we experience injustice, we cry out. Sometimes so much so that that the spittle comes off of our lips. We're so angry at what happens. Here we see that Jesus was silent. He rebelled not. He lashed not out his accusers. If anyone could or should have put up a fuss, it was Christ. He was innocent of all charges. But he wouldn't even open his mouth. Matthew records this scene. Let me read it to you. But when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? They were all lies, of course. But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. In other words, the governor's like, this isn't how people normally act. You're innocent. Why aren't you fighting? It amazed Pilate. It's when Jesus was finally on the cross that he did open his mouth. And you recall what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God used the unjust treatment of his son in order to bring about justice for us and forgiveness. Jesus was judged by 
harsh oppression. He was taken away from his generation. He was cut off from the land of the living. We know that. He was laid in a tomb. He ended up, but it was a rich man's tomb. As we read in verse 9, he said, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus was crucified between two criminals and, and his body was laid in a tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And it was, he was a rich man. Now, if this poem, if this servant song ended here with the fourth stanza, we would be left wondering, but was he ever really successful? The fifth and final stanza, we see that the servant was crushed and died, and yet in the end he was victorious. In this final stanza, no longer are the witnesses talking. In verse 10, we see uh, Isaiah's voice. Um, and sometime in verse 11 now, the, the voice, though, changes to the Lord himself. Verse 10, 11, and 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the strong, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This final stanza begins with the word yet. It's a, it's a word that's meant to, to highlight the, the, and distinguish the differences in, in this stanza versus the ones prior to it. In spite of these tragic uh, miscarriages of justice, God is actually going to produce a victory here. It was God's will that the servant would lie down like a lamb for our sins. You know, God is both a God of love and a God of justice. And what we see here in this is that in his great love for us, he sends his son in order to fulfill the justice. But the plan wasn't to leave him in the grave. As we see from what's alluded to here, the grave wouldn't hold him. This, and as we know from Christ, the tomb could not hold Jesus Christ either. He was raised a new life. Isaiah says in verse 10 that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper. Out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. All of this speaks to, to a resurrection, to a coming back to life. And you notice, it isn't just the servant himself who experiences the, the victory. We too can participate. It says, it's the Lord, uh, the Lord speaking now, and he says that my righteous servant will make many righteous. And how do we participate in this? Well, verse 11 says, by his knowledge, by knowledge of the servant, by hearing and knowing and, and understanding and receiving, even what we're talking about here and trusting in Christ, his victory becomes your victory. His salvation comes to you. Many shall be declared righteous. And more than that, we also see that, that his glory is shared with us. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The image here is of a conquering king returning from battle with the spoils of war and, and sharing it with 
his subjects. What we see here is, is, is now this picture of this lamb whose suffering has now become and transformed or morphed into a gracious king who's willing to share with all of his people. Do you see Jesus this way? Well, that's the servant song in all its chiseled appearance. Maybe you've never read this before. Maybe you've never seen it on the pages of Scripture. Um, Maybe you've studied it many times. How are we to respond to it? The first verse of the second stanza calls us to respond with belief. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of of the Lord throughout Isaiah is God's powerful strength to bring back to him people who have run away and rebelled from him. To whom is God's gracious arm of powerful strength to bring people? Who has it been revealed to? Who has believed? Some of you here perhaps have never placed your trust in Christ. Uh, Perhaps you're a little bit offended that someone would say that you need a Savior. Uh, Perhaps you feel sorry for Jesus. In your your estimation, Jesus was just a poor sage or teacher whose life was ended up misguided and he somehow died a, a misfortunate death. Others see Jesus as a religious leader and you know, like him, but you know, he's just not all that interested in becoming religious, right? Maybe that's you today. Perhaps you're just irked that you someone's telling you you need a savior. Remember what the text says. It says all we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. We all need this substitute Savior. So for, these, for those of you who have yet to turn and to trust in Christ, in a few moments there will be some people who come forward to, to receive the Lord's Supper. I encourage you at that time, there's a, like a prayer on the back of your bulletin. It's a prayer of belief. Pray that through. Make it your own. Come to faith in Christ. Here's what you're going to experience. You're going to experience what has been promised in this passage. If you trust in Christ, your sins will be laid on him. Like that scapegoat that gets released out into the wilderness, far away from you forever and ever will your sins be taken. Most of us here, though, we've we've already seen Christ this way. Perhaps you've not seen him in, in this servant song, but may today be a time where we... Lift this text up off the pages. May it become a a, a treasured, chiseled picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. may, May it be a way for you to marvel all the more at who Christ is and what he's done for you. And and out of out of your marveling, may your marveling lead you to worship. We're to come to the Lord's table. After that, we're going to sing man of sorrows. Lift up your hearts as we do that. And out of of your marveling, we also are called to to make this message known. Did you see the the, the triumphant expectation of the first stanza? This, This servant will cleanse many nations. All the nations of the world will sometime hear of this. The reason why you're hearing it today in this nation 2,000 years later across the vast ocean is because God is fulfilling what he's showing us here. And you, as a follower of Christ, are someone who holds in your hands this beautiful chiseled picture of God's gift to this world. Right before this, right before this passage, this servant song, right before, hear the words that, that we read. Perhaps you're familiar with them. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Christian, you hold this truth in your hands and in your head and in your hearts. It's a truth that this world is desperate to hear. And it's upon you and me to bring this message to them. Perhaps this week, if you consider continue to pray through this passage, maybe that little bulletin insert of of this passage, you can take it to a co-worker or a friend and sit down with them and say, let's take a look at this. Let me show you what I've seen. Perhaps you can trust in this one. Now, let's close by reading the servant song. As I read aloud, feel free to just silently read along with me. Feel free to close your eyes. Feel free to, if you want, kneel and pray. Um, But whatever you do, just allow the words to soak in. And then we will celebrate the Lord's table. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. 
We thank you in the, in the mysterious paradox of how you operate. You uh, became flesh. You sent your son. The divine took on human frailty. You bore our sin. We rejoice to see that like the scapegoat that's been set free, our sins have been laid on Christ. We thank you that his work continues on to this very day. May we be a people who delight in our Savior, what he's done for us. May we be a people who share this message with others. And may we worship him now, we pray. Amen.